0: Welcome to Phone Messages, Episode 173, Give Me a Call. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I have another message from an unknown caller. The message is two seconds long and comes from the spring of 1990. Let's listen. If you want to go give me a call. As should be clear by now, I can usually identify the voice of close friends hearing just one or two words from their message. But the voice from this recording draws a blank. When it comes to messages from voices I cannot identify, there are two main categories. Those where the caller has likely dialed the wrong number, and to those who have dialed the correct number, but whose purpose for calling is unclear. In which case, the question becomes if the caller is from school, work, or something else. In this instance, I am going to guess that it falls in the latter category, and that it comes from an editor at the Gray City Journal. Despite being in graduate school full-time, I continued to be active in GCJ, attending weekly meetings, and contributing an article on average once a month. Most stories I wrote recounted everyday incidents from my life and were intended to also somehow comment on contemporary society. I've mentioned a few of these stories in previous podcasts, such as enduring a collective beating after a late-night car accident and visiting my grandmother at her Lakeland, Florida, nursing home. Sometimes the events were more banal, like observing a guy in nothing but tidy whities running through the weed-filled empty lot in front of my apartment or someone yelling at me from a Chicago Parks Department van to walk my bike through the underpass leading to Promontory Point. I'm not sure whose writing I was trying to imitate, although today I might say David Foster Wallace or David Sedaris. Unfortunately, I completely lacked their writing skills. Looking back, I wish I had enrolled in a creative writing class, or at least joined a critique group, since many of my essays sorely needed feedback. The Gray City editors did not provide much criticism, since, for the most part, they were just happy having something to fill up space each issue. At the same time, I had little knowledge of the narrative nonfiction genre instead being completely absorbed in academic tomes of Marxist and post theory. Many readers might associate the origins of so-called new journalism, where the techniques of fiction are applied to factual material, with writers from the 1960s and 70s like Truman Capote, Joan Didion, or Tom Wolfe. But writing news that has an additional goal of entertainment can be traced at least back to the penny press in antebellum cities like New York. For example, the 1836 murder of the prostitute Helen Jewett and the subsequent acquittal of her young patrician client Richard Robinson led to a series of highly dramatized investigations by the New York Herald and New York Sun. However, a better early model for my efforts at GCJ would be the spectator column from the late 19th century magazine The Outlook. A column from the February 24, 1894 issue, presumably written by editor Lyman Abbott, reads, During a recent morning stroll down Fifth Avenue, from the Manhattan Club to Madison Square, and then back by way of Broadway, the spectator was struck by the growth of a modern New York custom the fondness for eating in hotel and restaurant windows. As he turned the matter over in his mind while smoking an after-dinner cigar, the spectator speculated as to how many street passers noted the fact of such an exhibition, or gave a chance thought to its bad taste, its indelicacy, its positive vulgarity. In the 20th century, the magazine that came to embody this type of reporting was certainly The New Yorker, which introduced its talk of the town section in the first issue from February 1925. Here's an excerpt from that first issue. Broadway has no end of actors out of work. But, as a rule, they refuse to admit the truth of their unemployment. Possibly it is because he is so well-known and liked as a comedian that he doesn't mind admitting a disastrous season now and then that Denman Maley was prompted to make the confession below, an engraved copy of which cheered my breakfast one day last week. Doris Richmond Maley, announces the idleness of her husband, Denman, in New York City, commencing February 1, 1925. At home, receiving offers, 130 West 44th Street, New York City. Like many traditional print institutions, The New Yorker has now expanded into other media, notably radio and podcasts. But in the audio realm, Ira Glass is our paterfamilias. Beginning with its early episodes in the mid-1990s, This American Life often featured eccentric personal stories, arguably boosting the career of David Sedaris, a frequent contributor. In 2012, This American Life faced controversy when a story they broadcast about Apple manufacturing in China was revealed to be partially fabricated. This led the program to reframe the monologues of Sedaris, who has admitted that he often exaggerates for comic effect. And this gets at a central dilemma faced by writers of memoir and autobiography, especially when it comes to reconstructing long-past events. How does one create an entertaining story when our memory often becomes foggy and lacks the necessary details to keep a reader engaged? Unless one can draw on a diary or some other notes taken contemporaneously, much of this detail must be invented. This is especially true of dialogue. Whenever I see a long conversation recounted in a memoir, I think, without a tape recorder, how could this author possibly remember so much of what was said 10, 20, even 30 years ago? Well, what if you saved a partial recording from 30 years ago? In particular, one captured from an answering machine. Would that be enough to create a compelling narrative? Let me know by going to pfoch.com. That's P F O T S C H.com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.